Good morning. Well, if you got your Bible, go ahead and open it to John chapter 4. That's where we're going to camp out today as we wrap up our series on the Outsiders. And then next week, Pastor Roger is going to be back in the pulpit. Um, he's been on sabbatical the past two months, and so we're excited to have him back. And he's going to start a new series over the book of Judges next week. Um, but if you've been rolling with us this summer, uh, you know we've been exploring different examples and different characters in the Bible uh, that emphasize God's heart and God's plan for the outsider. And the reason we chose to do this series is because really in our society and often in our churches, uh, people are ca- categorized really into two groups. There's the insiders and then there's the outsiders. And the outsiders of the world, uh, these are the obvious sinners. Uh, these are the ones who have clearly uh, run away from God. They've chosen to do their own thing. They're rebels. And then you've got the insiders of the world, um, often known as these religious fundamentalists. And these are, these are the moralists. These are the rule followers. And these are ones who often think they are better than others because of their self-perceived goodness. And they will often point out the speck in their brother's eye, even while they have a log in their own. And it's common for both sides, insiders and outsiders, to point the finger at the other side, thinking that they are right and the other is wrong. For example, uh, the outsiders will often look down on insiders, thinking that they are hypocritical bigots who are narrow-minded. And then insiders will often look down on outsiders, and they'll think to themselves, if they would just get their act together and live a more disciplined and moral life, perhaps things would go better for them. And there's this massive war in our culture and in our churches between these two groups. And when Jesus showed up on the earth 2,000 years ago, this same problem existed. And he said, let's get one thing straight here. When it comes to God's economy, there's only one category that mankind fits into, and it's this. We are a lost people who are desperately in need of God's grace. That's the message of the Bible. Whether you are a self-righteous rule follower or whether you are a rebellious rule breaker, you're both equally broken and you both equally need God's grace. And the good news of the Bible is we have a God who is abounding in grace, a God who enters into the muck and mire of our lives in order to seek us out and call us home. And we're going to get a vivid picture of that today as we read about the woman at the well. But before we dive in, I'd love for you just to pray with me briefly again, so that we can ask God to do what only he can do. And so I'd love for you just to take a moment, wherever you're at, if you're at home or whether you're here in person, would you just ask God, would you teach me, God, through your word? Ask him right now, silently. And I'd love for you to pray for me too, that God would calm my heart, that I would speak clearly and speak what he wants me to say. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Would you have your way? And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's start by reading the first six verses of John chapter four. It says this. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went away again into Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, 
near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about the sixth hour. Let's stop there. Well, the story begins with with Jesus having to leave Judea because of a baptism controversy going on between his disciples and John the Baptist's disciples. And the Pharisees were were trying to incite competition and rivalry uh, between these two groups. And so Jesus is like, I'm out. And so he leaves Judea in order to head for Galilee. And then you'll notice in verse 4, if you want to look there, it says, in order for Jesus to get to Galilee, he had to pass through Samaria. And this is a big statement once you begin to understand the hostile relationship between Jews and Samaritans. These two groups of people did not like each other one bit. So let me give you a brief history lesson as to why. Uh, If you go back in your history books to 722 BC, you can read about this in 2 Kings 17 and 18, that Assyria conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And when they conquered them, they deported about half of the Jews from their homeland, and then they imported Gentiles to replace them. And these Gentiles intermarried with the Jews that remained, and these racially mixed Jews were called Samaritans because they are part Jew and part Gentile. And many of these Gentile foreigners, when they came and intermarried with the Jews, they brought their pagan gods with them. Therefore, pure Jews viewed Samaritans as idol-worshiping half-breeds, and they wanted nothing to do with them. So when the deported pure Jews came back to the land, they rejected their Samaritan relatives, and they refused to worship them, worship with them. And what the Samaritans did, out of spite, they created their own temple in order to worship there. And this just fueled and fanned the hatred between these two groups. And the hatred was so fierce that some Jews were known to pray. They, they would pray to God, asking him, God, please do not raise up Samaritans from the dead at the resurrection. I mean, just an intense uh, prayer. It's kind of crazy. Uh, now that the Texas Longhorns have joined the SEC, many Aggies have started praying the same prayer. Okay, prayed it this morning. Um, I'm, I'm joking, okay? I'm clearly joking. My boss is a Longhorn. My other boss, John Gordon, is a Longhorn. Okay, so, so if I'm not here next week, you, you know why, okay? But while I'm clearly joking, uh, the Jews were dead serious. They hated these people. So much so that if a Jew needed to travel to the other side of Samaria, instead of taking the shorter route and just cutting right through, they would often take the longer route and go by the river or by the coast in order to avoid being around these people. Yet when Jesus, a Jew, decides to go to Galilee, what does he do? He goes right through Samaria. And it's stuff like this that's going to end up getting him killed. Because Jesus, he just didn't abide by the social norms set up by the religious elite that kept certain groups of people out of their community. Jesus would often pursue and engage with those that the moralist insiders deemed untouchable. And it's why the fundamentalists of the day hated Jesus, but Jesus doesn't care. He goes straight through Samaria. And it says that about noon, 
Jesus arrives at a city in Samaria named Sychar, where he is weary and tired from his journey, so he decides to rest at Jacob's well. And just a quick side note here. Um, If Jesus, the Son of God, needed to slow down at times and get some rest, then we too, at times, need to allow ourselves to slow down and get some rest. Um, I don't know who I'm talking to right now, um, but I think there's someone out there like, you need to slow down a little bit and give yourself a break and realize you're human. Because if Jesus needed that, then so do we. And the fact that Jesus got tired at times should give us assurance that he understands what weariness feels like. And if that's you this morning, God knows what you're going through because we don't worship a God who's just floating up in the heavens who is unmoved and unsympathetic towards what we're going through. No, we worship a God, as Hebrews 4 says, who sympathizes with our every weakness. He empathizes and understands our frailty and our weariness in a way that no one else can because he willingly left his throne in heaven. He took on flesh so that he could identify with us. We worship a God who not only saves us from our brokenness, but a God who enters into the brokenness with us. And that's what he does here. A tired and weary Jesus makes his way to Jacob's well, where he's going to encounter a very tired and weary woman, which is where we're going to pick up in verse 7. It says this. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Let's pause there. Uh, This is an absolutely remarkable interaction for multiple reasons. So let's talk about why. Uh, Number one, this woman is absolutely shocked that Jesus is initiating a conversation with her. Remember, she's a Samaritan woman and Jesus is a Jewish man. And as we discussed already, Jews and Samaritans did not like each other. So by initiating a conversation with a Samaritan, Jesus is deliberately crossing a deeply embedded racial and cultural barrier. That's number one. Number two, on top of being a Samaritan, she's also a woman. And the normal prejudices of the day prohibited public conversation between males and females, especially strangers of the opposite sex. It would have been taboo for any upright and moral Jew to talk to a woman in public. Yet Jesus violates this cultural norm and crosses the gender barrier in order to minister to this woman. And then number three, 
We're going to find out in a minute that this is not just some ordinary woman. She's a broken woman. She's got some issues. She has a past. She's a sinner. And she's an outsider. As a religious Jewish male, Jesus should have nothing to do with her, but Jesus doesn't care. He crosses every possible obstacle at that time in order to have a conversation with this woman. He violates the racial, cultural, gender, and moral, moral barriers at that time just to have a conversation with her. Do you see how radical this is? That's why this woman is so shocked. And the next fascinating feature of this dialogue is while Jesus radically crosses every barrier known at that time to converse with her, he also boldly confronts her. He boldly confronts her. And the first thing he confronts her about is living water. Uh, one thing you'll notice about Jesus is he marvelously uses everyday needs and experiences in order to transition to gospel conversations. Um, I remember back in college, uh, my freshman year, that's really when I started following Jesus. That's where I really made my faith my own. And uh, up at college, I had a bunch of family members up at AM, um, a lot of cousins that were there, and God burdened my heart to, to share the gospel with them. And I remember in, in history class, uh, one of my cousins, she was in class with me, and I was praying, God, would you give me opportunities just to share Christ with her? And on this one particular day, we had just taken a test. And we were getting our exam results back. And she got hers back, and she had gotten a 98 on the test. And she looked at me, and she said, Ha! Jason, beat that. <laughs> uh, well, a few seconds later, I got mine. And by the grace of God, I got 103. <laughs> and I just kind of smirked and showed it to her. And she was like, What? Like, how'd you do that? I didn't even know you can get 103. <laughs> She's like, What'd you do? And I said, I don't know. I had just studied. And then I prayed. And I leave the results up to God. And after class, we walked home to our dorms. And she said, Jason, talk to me a little bit about prayer. <laughs> she said, how do you pray? Which led to, what does a relationship with God look like? Which led to her sharing about some of the deep struggles that she was going through in life. Which led to me getting the chance to open up the Bible and share the gospel with her. Where she prayed to receive Christ in my dorm room. Right. Um, just an everyday usual situation in college that led to a gospel conversation. First Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks to give a reason for the hope that is in you. And that's what Jesus does in this story. He takes an everyday experience drawing water from a well and he transitions it to a gospel conversation. But she is floored by the fact that a Jewish man is asking her, a Samaritan woman, for water. She's like, why are you talking to me? And Jesus turns the table and he says to her, woman, if you knew the gift of God, if you truly understood who it is you are talking to, you'd be asking me for a drink and I'd give you living water. And she's initially confused by what Jesus is referring to. She's like, I don't get what you're talking about. You don't have anything to draw water with, and this is Jacob's well, which is a gift from God. You have better water than this? And Jesus responds. He says, everyone who drinks the water from this well will thirst again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. For this water will become in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, his metaphor about living water, uh, it loses a lot of us because most of us have, have never experienced the agony of true thirst. Same with starvation. Uh, most of us have never experienced what it's like to be truly hungry. Um, oftentimes at dinner time in my house, my daughters will yell out. They say, Daddy, I'm starving. And I'm like, girl, uh, you're not starving. You're just spoiled, okay? Hey, you're you're going to be okay. Um, but people in this culture who lived in an arid climate, who didn't have faucets and water bottles all over the place, they understood deeply what it meant to be thirsty. You see, our bodies are, are mostly made up of water. So to be truly thirsty can be one of the most agonizing things out there. And to taste water when you feel like you are dying of thirst can be one of the most refreshing things possible. Because water is an essential need. It's necessary. And so Jesus tells her, he says, I've got something for you spiritually that is equivalent to what water is to you physically. He says, the water I have will satisfy you from the inside out. Meaning, no matter what is happening to you on the outside, no matter what is happening to you circumstantially, no matter what season of life you're in, it will not be able to quench the satisfaction of the water that I give. Do you catch what Jesus is saying? He's saying, I can give you absolute incomprehensible fulfillment in the core of your being, regardless of what happens outside of you, regardless of circumstance. Let's get practical. The fact of the matter is every single one of us, we're thirsty. We're thirsty. All of us deep inside, we thirst for something. It gnaws at us from the very depths of our soul. Uh, For some of you, Uh, You're thirsting for relational fulfillment. You're thirsting for a companion to do life with. For others, you're thirsting for greater intimacy with your spouse or perhaps your kids or your parents. For some, you thirst for a certain standard of living as we seek after possessions and statuses to fill that void. For others, we thirst for fame and attention. For some, it's sex and stimulation. The list goes on. None of us are strangers when it comes to deep soul thirst because we are a thirsty people. The problem with most of us is the world tempts us by saying, like, if you just got X, you'd be happy. If only X would happen, you'd find fulfillment. Just do this, buy that, achieve this, and you will be satisfied. And we're all tempted by that lie, aren't we? From time to time. I know I am. Like, ask yourself, what do you think would truly make you happy? Like, if you got blank, you'd be satisfied. Because the truth is, we all chase after something. It's part of human nature. It's how you were created. It's not bad. The problem is we often chase after the wrong thing. Because if God is not the thing we are chasing... Whatever it is we are chasing will ultimately disappoint and enslave us 
leaving us needing and wanting more, yet never truly satisfying. God talks about this in Jeremiah 2.13. He says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. God says, instead of turning to me, instead of humbling yourself and asking me for living water, you've turned to other things that will never satisfy you. Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever turned to something hoping that it would satisfy but it just left you thirstier than before. Anyone who has ever turned to pornography knows exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who's cheated on their spouse for temporary pleasure, they know. Anyone who's ever experienced substance abuse, abuse understands. Anyone who has neglected their family for fame and success, they know. And Jesus tells this woman, he says, there is nothing this world can offer. There is nothing you can personally achieve that will ever truly make you satisfied deep in your soul. There's only one thing that will ever truly satisfy your soul, and it's me. It's me. He says, I'm the only one who can quench your soul's thirst because I've got water that will never run dry. It never runs out. You can take a drink again and again and again for all eternity. It's always available. No matter the circumstance, no matter what's going on outside of you, it will provide for you strength, joy, and satisfaction once you come take a drink. And the Samaritan woman hears what Jesus has to offer, and this is how she responds in verse 15. Let's read together. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Our fathers worshiped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. And when that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Man, this is so powerful. So Jesus promises this woman, he says, he has living water that will truly satisfy her thirst. And she's hooked. She's like, yeah, hook a sister up. I'm in. I want some of this water. I mean, this is like the perfect softball pitch. This is like altar call time. She is ready to receive the living water from Jesus. I mean, this is like, hey, Jesus, just Romans wrote it. Pray the prayer, lead her to salvation, and call it a day. But that's not what Jesus does here. 
In verse 16, he turns the table and he says, cool, you want some of this water? Go get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. Jesus says, I know you don't, girl, because you've had five of them. And the guy you're with now, he's not your husband. That's a hard word. And so the question is, man, what's Jesus doing? Like, like why would he do this? Like some of you are like, that's why I don't like church. That's what church people do. Is, is Jesus trying to humiliate her? Is he trying to hurt her? No, the opposite, actually. He's trying to set her free. Because when you hear this girl's story, it's clear. She's thirsty. She's thirsty. She's longing for fulfillment. She's gone from one broken relationship to the next. She's gone from one bed to another bed to another to another. She's wounded. And Jesus says, let's talk about that. You see, it was common for women to go draw draw water from the well, which they would usually do in the morning. It was not common to draw water from a well in the middle of the day. Okay, why was this woman going to the well at the hottest part of the day? Because she knew nobody else would be there. And now we see this woman is carrying much more than just a jar of water. She's also carrying a burden of shame. And Jesus wants to set her free from that shame. You see, church, when Jesus sheds light on a broken area of your life, it is never to condemn you. It's to set you free. John 3.17 says this, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Church, there is no freedom apart from acknowledging your sin. And Jesus knows this. If this woman is ever going to move forward in life, if she is ever going to experience the joy that she was meant to experience, then she would have to give the darkest parts of her heart to Jesus so that his grace could do its cleansing work. There's an old hymn that says, Till sin is bitter... Christ will not be sweet. And with that in mind, Jesus leans into this woman's heart and he says, go get your husband. You want to taste grace, girl? Then go get your sin and bring it to me. No, don't go just get fixed up. Don't just do a bunch of religious activities. No, go get all your brokenness. Get the darkest parts of your heart and you bring them to me. This woman has a wound and Jesus brings it into the light You see, our Savior Church, He's not content with only our confessions. He's after our hearts. And He wants it all. And the reality is, we've all got wounds. Every single one of us, whether you're here in person or whether you're online at home, no one gets through life without a wound. Every single one of you are here this morning, you've got one. And some wounds come about because of foolish decisions that we've made. I know for me, I got a lot of those. For others, your wounds have nothing to do with your foolish decisions, but things beyond your control. And I don't think I need to to list what those things are. You know. And for some of you, probably a lot of you, whatever your wound is, it's caused all sorts of pain, and shame in your life. And in order to cope with it, you've gotten really good at just masking it or ignoring it. But Jesus is like, if you want me to set you free, 
you got to let me deal with your wound. And that's what he does with this woman. And then she gives a pretty typical response. Okay, especially for religious folk, especially those in the church. Okay, Jesus has just unveiled her heart. He's just uh, exposed the most painful part of her story. And in my opinion, she completely deflects. She diverts the attention away from her heart. She says, you must be a prophet. Well, tell me, prophet, uh, should I worship on the mountain where the Jews worship? Or should I worship on the mountain where my people worship? Okay, listen, as a pastor, uh, I love a good theological debate. Uh, Doctrine is really, really, really important. But sometimes Christians are guilty of hiding behind doctrine in order to avoid talking about their heart. And I personally think that's what this woman is doing. Jesus has unveiled this woman's heart and she responds with one of the great theological questions of the day. She says, what mountain is the right mountain to worship on? She's trying to change the subject. She's pulling a Jesus juke. You can't juke out Jesus. <laughs> he always makes the tackle. And so he responds. He says, he says listen, woman, an hour is coming. In fact, it's here right now where the place of worship will not matter because God himself is going to indwell every believer with his spirit so that you will be able to worship God 24-7, anytime, anywhere. And a light bulb goes off in this woman's mind. And she, she says, you know, I've heard about this Messiah that's to come who's going to reveal all things. And Jesus drops the bomb. He says, you're looking at him. I'm that guy. Quit playing games and give me your heart. Give me your heart. You don't got to fix yourself. I'll do that for you. That's what salvation is. It's a free gift. It cannot be earned. Romans 5, 8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When he went to that cross, he knew what he was getting into. He knew how broken we were. He knew how ugly our sin was. And he says, bring it to me. Bring it to me. I can tell you. And he crushed that stuff on the cross and he raised from the dead. That's what he did. That's what he's about. And when you truly begin to grasp the ugliness of your sin and then witness the beauty of God's grace, when you know you're not worthy, the only response is to worship, is to worship. Because we come to God with dirty hands, don't we, church? And by his grace, he washes us clean. All we can do is worship. And that's what this woman does. When she realizes this is the Christ, verse 28 says she drops her water jar and she runs home. And she tells everybody, come see a man who told me all the things that I've done. Is this not the Christ? And the people went out of the city and they are coming to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Last summer um, when I got COVID, um, I had to self-isolate for 10 days. And I know everyone has a different experience with COVID. For me, uh, personally, this self-isolation was way worse uh, than COVID itself. And during that time, I I would love to tell you that I just read through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, um, but I didn't do that at all. I just watched way too many shows, okay? And and a good friend of mine, uh, who a lot of you know, Michael Laudermilk, he texted me. He's like, you know, you've got the time. You need to check out this new show called Chosen. And if you've never seen it, Chosen is a television drama series over the life of Christ. 
And I remember I, I watched the episode of the woman at the well. And I was like, oh, we'll see how this is. <laughs> by the end of it, I'm just like in tears by myself, like in my room, just watching this episode. It's obviously a fictional, um, a fictional deal. But I think it provides some imagery that is really neat. And so I want to end our time by just taking a few minutes of watching some of that clip. And so pay attention to the screen. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah, exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit, and the time is coming and is now here that it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me. I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity was excited to be married, but he wasn't a good man. He hurt you, and it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with, but you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. 
it won't be all about mountains or temples. Soon. Just the heart. <laughs> you promise. I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> What is? You forgot your um. Papi, your man, you told me everything I ever did. <laughs> it's fun to imagine, isn't it? Our God's a good God, and as beautiful as that is, when we get to heaven, it's going to be a lot more beautiful <laughs> because our God loves us. It doesn't matter how dirty you feel right now. The grace of God cleanses all. All. And if you're here this morning and you're, you feel rejected because of decisions you've made, things you've done, the way people have responded to you, how God loves you. And there's living water for you this morning. Will you come take a drink? Will you come take a drink? For those of us in Christ, we get to come to this well over and over and over and over again for the rest of eternity. And may we be a people who go out into a broken world, a world filled with people who feel worthless and rejected, and may we give them the message of hope that they are accepted by God and they are loved by Him. Let's pray and then let's worship. Father God, we thank you for this story in the Bible. Because people like me need to hear it. Because life is hard. And I know a lot of us here, we're struggling. But God, would you give us new strength again this morning? As we think about the fact that you are God who loves sinners and you give grace to those who feel weak and you give them new life, all because that's what you wanted to do. And so once again, God, for those of us that do believe, we lift our hands and we say, thank you, God, give us strength once more. And then, Father, if there's anybody here that's just been going through the motions, going to different religious activities, but never truly understanding that we are saved by grace through faith, period. May they come to that realization this morning. Would you draw them home? Holy Spirit, would you move right now in their hearts? We love you, God, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.